Welcome to another quarantine episode of Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website Evidence-Based Arada. You can also find me on Twitter at EBR underscore VFR. Let's start tonight with a PSA. It is the July 4th weekend, and we all know that fireworks are often involved legally or illegally. If you're going to be setting off some sparklers or other fireworks, be advised, fireworks and hand sanitizer do not go together. Hand sanitizers are typically 60 to 70% alcohol. Alcohol and fire do not mix, National Safety Council spokesperson Maureen Vogel told CNN. You shouldn't pair flammable items. It's the proverbial recipe for disaster. So if you're going to be handling fireworks, use good old-fashioned soap and water. Or even better, don't handle fireworks at all. Besides being dangerous to your own health and safety... They are also detrimental to the health and safety of many veterans and others with PTSD, as well as to many pets. Now, I know that it's a downer that we won't have large celebrations like we normally have, though it does seem fitting, fitting given recent events, to consider being more thoughtful this year about the state of the country rather than just putting some fireworks up into the sky and saying hooray. (laughs) Now, I will admit, though, I actually do love fireworks, and I have a long-standing tradition of watching the display at UMass with my um, aunt and uncle, and so I am disappointed. But hopefully we'll be able to celebrate with renewed vigor next summer, both because we'll presumably have a vaccine and we'll be on our way to being a better country that respects all of its citizens. We're still a long way off from true equality, but every little step helps. Okay, let's move on now to a story about another amazing African-American woman. Dr. Rebecca Lee Crumpler was the first African-American woman to earn a medical degree. She was also the author of one of the country's early medical textbooks, published in 1883, Book of Medical Discourses, which consisted of two parts. The first on the, quote, cause, prevention, and cure of infantile bowel complaints of children up to five years old. The second part was, Miscellaneous information concerning the life and growth of beings, the beginning of womanhood, also the cause, prevention, and cure of many of the most distressing complaints of women and youth of both sexes. While the information is quite dated now, it was actually meant to give young women the ability to tend to their families. Its first chapter discusses when and how young women should marry, Uh, She suggests between 19 and 20 years old (laughs) and goes on from there to talk about, obviously, a lot of the diseases that babies encounter along the way. 
And so it was really meant to give women a bit of information so that they could be empowered to help their family. Now, Crumpler was born in 1831 in Delaware, but grew up in Pennsylvania. What little we know of her is mostly contained within the forward, forward of her book. Having been reared by a kind aunt in Pennsylvania, whose usefulness with the sick was continually sought, I early conceived a liking for, and sought every opportunity to, relieve the sufferings of others, Crumpler wrote in her seminal book. She began her career as a nurse in 1852 in in Charleston, Mass., when nursing didn't actually require specific training. The first formal school for nursing was only opened in 1873. She was a nurse for eight years before enrolling in the New England Female Medical College, graduating in 1864, and had the uh, honor of being the only African-American woman to graduate from the college, which actually closed in 1873. She practiced briefly in Boston before moving to Richmond, Virginia after the end of the Civil War in 1865. She decided to move to the South because she felt it would give her, quote, a proper field for real missionary work and one that would present ample opportunities to become acquainted with the diseases of women and children. During my stay there, nearly every hour was improved in that sphere of labor. The last quarter of the year 1866, I was enabled to have access each day to a very large number of the indigent and others of different classes in a population of over 30,000 colored. While in Richmond, she worked with other black physicians caring for freed slaves who otherwise wouldn't have had access to medical care without the help from agencies like the Freedmen's Bureau, for which she worked, missionary, and community groups. Now, despite doing important work, African-American physicians did face severe racism in this time period, in this place. And so it is doubly impressive that she was willing to move to this area to do this work, especially as a woman as well. Because as we know, that ends up being a double-edged sword many times. And so um, she did eventually return to the North. At the close of my services in that city, she explained, I returned to my former home, Boston, where I entered into the work with renewed vigor, practicing outside and receiving children in the house for treatment, regardless in a measure of remuneration. She lived first on Beacon Hill, then a predominantly black neighborhood, before moving to Hyde Park, where she retired from practice. Her book was based on her diaries during those years of service. Though no images survive of Dr. Crumpler, she was very much a pioneer, who not only was a physician at a very early date, but was also able to publish when few African Americans had access to that activity as well. And so, unfortunately, you've probably never heard of her before. Again, uh, like last week, I hadn't heard of her before. I started to do research into um, this field of 
people who have largely been forgotten in history. Um, some simply because there's not all that much known about them, but others most likely because of their racial identity. Okay, let's move on now to talk about a sort of a good effect of the coronavirus. Now, I know that seems impossible. Um, everything about it is really terrible um, for the most part, and I don't want to downplay that in any way, shape, or form. However, there have been certain things that have emerged. We've had a lot of communities come together in ways to support one another that we didn't have prior to this. And so one of those things is that the people of Mexico City are reviving an ancient tradition. And the and so the Xochimilco region of the uh, of Mexico City contains around 100 miles of canals. The area was once a thriving center of food production for the city because the area was once filled with chinampas, floating gardens first created by the Aztecs to feed the city's population. Now, production production has continued through to the present day. However, rapid urbanization in the 1900s began to see the decline of land for farming. And in 1985, when a major earthquake devastated the city, many chinampas were abandoned by people who built shanty towns in place of their ruined homes. Today, only around 20% of the approximately 5,000 acres of the chinampas are in use, and only 3% of that is used for farming. But because COVID-19 has disrupted the industrial food production for the city, small farmers have increased production and are rehabilitating abandoned chinampas in order to provide fresh food to the city. Raul Mondragon, founder of Colectivo Ajuyote, has been working on restoring chinampas since 2016. He told Atlas Obscura via Zoom that... We're talking about something that's a thousand years old. We have to preserve this. They've actually created a system, kind of like a CSA, which allows people to purchase goods in open-air markets, which helps limit their exposure. So one of the big problems in Mexico City was that the main market is this very cramped, enclosed market. And so a lot of people didn't want to go to the market for good reason, um, because we know that the best way to expose yourself to getting the coronavirus is to be in an enclosed space around a lot of people. And so being able to do pickups outdoors, that's much easier and better for people. Um, the rate of infection for outdoors is much, much lower than for indoor venues. Now, quarantine has also given many Mexicans more time to cook and to think about where their food comes from. The collective operates as an NGO to develop cooperatives among farmers, and they have started a for-profit business to sell their produce. They hope to re rehabilitate abandoned Chiampas and to promote both sustainable agriculture as well as the country's agricultural heritage. Many of the Chinampero, 
farmers who work the gardens have had to have other jobs to support themselves, but now they are being able to work less outside of the farm due to the growing demands. Chinampa comes from the Nahuatl word uh, chinamitl, which means a hedge or fence made out of reeds. This fence is then filled in with mud from the bottom of the canal, as well as vegetation from the lake, until the pile reaches the surface, creating a perfect platform for farming. These gardens are actually one of the most productive types of agriculture in the world, allowing for up to seven harvests a year. Chinamperos grow greens, herbs, flowers, fruits, and milpa, or the three sisters, corn, bean, and squash. Pedro Menendez Rojas has been farming his whole life. He farms the same chinampas as his father and grandfather. Being a chimpanero is a vocation, Mendez Rojas says. For me, it's a way of life. It's a way of hanging on to our traditions and our culture. So that is very exciting. Um, chinampas are a very, very exciting way to farm. As they noted, they are extremely, extremely good at um, being productive. I mean, up to seven harvests, that's pretty intense. Um, and so I think it's very cool that they're able to revive some of that Chinampas um, farming. And so obviously anything that is more sustainable is very good. Um, and I think that it's really important for them to be able to embrace ways that people have already been able to make that land productive. Um, because there's no point in reinventing the wheel and there's no point in trying to change what is a great system into some sort of cookie cutter farming, uh, Western style, um, industrial farming. If this land, if these chinampas can be turned into really productive, um, areas for agriculture. I think that's impressive and wonderful. Okay, let's move on and turn to another story about scientists finally solving a mystery. So for a century, scientists have been confounded by the knowledge that adding electrons to a bright blue ammonia solution changes it into a lustrous metallic bronze. The study used a new technique to reveal that the change is gradual rather than sudden. What we have done successfully is that we've pre pretty much understood how these solutions behave at a wide re range of concentrations using a microjet technique, said study co-author Ryan McMullen, a doctoral student in chemistry at the University of Southern California. The experiments were done in collaboration with scientists from the Czech Academy of Sciences and the Fritz Haber Institute of the Max Planck Society in Berlin, as well as researchers in Japan and France. Microjet technique involves shooting hair-thin streams of the solution through a vacuum. 
The discovery about the way in which a non-metal can be transformed into a metal could open up new types of reactions in organic chemistry, according to McMullen. In the study, the researchers first condensed ammonia into a liquid by cooling it to negative 27.4 degrees Fahrenheit, and then added sodium, lithium, or potassium, all alkali metals. The liquid ammonia pulled electrons from the metal. They then became trapped between ammonia molecules to create solvated electrons, the substance the researchers hoped to study. At low concentrations, the results are a blue non-metallic solution, but as more electrons are solvated or trapped, the solution transitions to shiny bronze. The researchers then examined how the solvated electrons behave at different concentrations. This is where the microjet technique came in. The jet of solution is injected through a beam of synchrotron X-rays, or high-energy X-ray beams, which excite the solvated electrons, causing them to hop out of their liquid cage of ammonia molecules. The researchers recorded how much energy was required to free the electrons. They found that the greater the concentration of solvated electrons, the more closely the readings matched those found in metals. So if you graph the amount of energy required to free electrons from their liquid ammonia cage, you find that at lower concentrations, that graph looks like a rounded hill. But at higher concentration, it develops a pattern with what's referred to as a Fermi edge, an abrupt transition. When you increase the concentration to the metallic range, then you see this wonderful pattern emergence that is very very characteristic of a metal, McMullen said. It is a genuine metal. It's not something that just looks like one. Lower concentration solvated electrons are used in a birch reaction, which adds electrons to aromatic rings, a type of molecular structure. It was actually used in the manufacture of the first oral contraceptive pills in the 1950s. By understanding how high concentration works, researchers can potentially find new chemical reactions. If you tickle the electrons a bit so that they're more energetically excited, you can start looking at some crazy reactions that would never otherwise happen, McMullen said. So that's very cool. Um, I absolutely adore stories where people are figuring out something that has been a mystery for a long time. And I think that that's one of the great things about science is that we are constantly developing new tools in order to be able to find these things out. Because a lot of times the reason we don't know why this is, is simply because we literally haven't developed a tool yet to measure it. And so that is one of the sort of overarching themes of all of this research in some ways, um, is that we are constantly developing new ways to look at things and new ways to measure things in order to figure out exactly how they're doing what they do. Now, this next story also talks about metals. And it is one of those sort of stories where 
it's very cool, but it's also a little bit kind of bittersweet to me. Um, because there are places where I feel like science could, you know, just leave things alone. Um, but we're going to talk about it because it is very cool. And I think that it could really lead to good industrial uses. Um, so speaking of metals, researchers have 3D printed metal that closely resembles Damascus steel. Now, Damascus, Damascus steel is famous uh, for being incredibly um, painstakingly created by artisans um, and is able to have both strength and agility. And so this steel has been forged again by hand for hundreds of years and is similar to techniques used uh, in traditional Japanese sword making, for instance. And so this technique involves uh, repeatedly folding the steel to produce hundreds or thousands of alternating layers, which in the end product will form intricate patterns of whirls and lines. But the effect is not just visual. The layers alternate between hard but brittle and more flexible steel for a superior final product. The two steels are characterized by having different carbon content and different microstructures controlling, controlled by how quickly they cool by quenching which is usually plunging it into uh, cold water. The researchers used a nickel-titanium-iron alloy steel that works well with 3D printing techniques. Metal powder is fed onto the work surface and then heated with a laser. Rapid cooling then produces a crystalline form as in quenched high-carbon steels but further heat treatment leads to the precipitation of microscopic nickel-titanium particles, which greatly increases the hardness of the steel, creating an expensive material called miraging steel. And so the researchers from the Max Planck Institute for Iron Research in Dusseldorf, Germany, wanted to use the layer-by-layer -layer process of printing the metal to be able to control the temperature each layer experienced. This would allow them to alter, alternate softer, more flexible layers with layers hardened by the precipitation process. They printed a cubic chunk of steel by simply turning the laser off for a couple of minutes every few layers. This would lead to the top layer rapidly cooling, converting to the required crystalline form. Once new hot layers were added, the crystallized layer would reheat and cause the precipitation of the nickel-titanium particles. The researchers then looked at the final product using microscopy. They were actually able to map, to, to create an atom map of the layers in order to verify the composition. They were actually able to see those tiny precipitates of the nickel-titanium. They experimented with different timings for the laser, measuring the resultant temperature patterns. They also suggest that the, laser, that the laser's power and speed could be varied, and separate sources of heating or cooling could also be added. Now, they ended up testing the strength of a block with just single printed layer gaps between the hardened layers 
against another block that was printed continuously with no hardened layers at all. Both were stretched until they fractured and failed. The Damascus-like sample was significantly stronger, holding up to around 20% more stretching force. This isn't as good as typical, typically produced miraging steel. However, that process requires, quote, a time-consuming and costly post-process aging heat treatment. And so, while this is just a proof of concept, the authors note that it could have implications for future steel production with fine-tuned properties. As an example, the researchers write, one could manufacture tools that are soft and tough on the inside, and only the outer skin is, is precipitation-hardened without the need to apply a coating or a case-hardening treatment. So that's pretty cool. I think that, again, these sorts of industrial processes are very cool. Um, but I think there is something to be said for the kind of artisanal work that is represented, say, in traditional Japanese sword making. Um, you know, the fact that we've discovered how they did it, um, as much as it's very cool, and I think we should know how they how they do it, um, I think there is an argument to be made about uh, traditions being co-opted by industrial processes. Um, I'm not uh, unsympathetic to that view in any way, shape, or form. Um, I think it's really, it was a really wonderful thing that people were able to preserve this knowledge and that they were able to keep a product that was unique to them. Um, and so even though we are now able to recreate these things and potentially use them in industrial processes, that's good. Um, especially if it allows us to do things in a less intensive, uh, way. But I also just think that, you know, part of the magic of Damascus steel is that for years, nobody knew how they did it. Um, or especially with samurai swords, uh, the precise way in which the um, makers of the swords were able to control the carbon amounts in the steel and do everything that they had to do was for a long time a pretty uh, well-kept secret. And, you know, again, I think there's something to be said for that. But I also obviously am a booster of science and technology and I think that it's important for us to be able to harness this sort of knowledge for uh, uses other than uh, creating artisanal <laughs> samurai swords or artisanal Damascus steel blades, um, even though I would love to have one of those <laughs> myself. Um, I think it would be very nice. Okay. We are going to take a break for a few minutes. We're going to do some PSAs and some show promos, and then we're going to come back and we're going to switch uh, gears a little bit, and we are going to talk about some archaeological stories. So hang on for just a few minutes. Outbreaks of whooping cough, or pertussis, are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine called Tdap, during the third trimester of each pregnancy, 
women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov pertussis pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. Hello, everybody. I'm DJ Panic, host of OK Asia, a program with a wide selection of Asian artists. I like to combine genres from rock, pop, hip-hop, Bollywood, and R&B. So please join me every Saturday from 12 to 2 a.m. on Valley Free Radio. Hey, this is Wendy, host of Valley Free Radio's subculture music program featuring new wave, post-punk, indie, and electronic music from the 70s to today. Join me every Friday night from 8 to 10 p.m. here on WXOJ or stream it live from your favorite listening device at valleyfreeradio.org. How to deal with someone who says that's so gay? Turn it around. Did your mom cut the crust off your peanut butter and jelly sandwich? (laughs) That is so gay. Oh, yeah? How would you like it if I said that so guy who makes fun of other people's sandwiches mostly because he's secretly jealous of them and who also has ketchup on his face? Okay, geez. Sorry. Wait, do I seriously have ketchup on me? When you say that's so gay, do you realize what you say? Knock it off. Learn more at thinkbeforeyouspeak.com. Brought to you by Glisten and the Ad Council. Confessions of a Potentially Perfect Parent, brought to you by AdoptUsKids.org. I know more about cooking dinner for a party of 12 than about packing a lunch for a 12-year-old. I know kids like things like fish sticks. Filets, I get, but sticks? Maybe we can just compromise on mac and cheese. Can you make that with Brie? You don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. There are thousands of teens in foster care who would love to put up with you. Call 1-888-200-4005 or visit AdoptUsKids.org for more information. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Adopt Us Kids, and the Ad Council. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. And we are back. You are listening to Evidence-Based Radio. And like I said, we are going to be moving on now to talk about some archaeological stories. Now, it turns out that the Assyrians, whose kingdom and capital city of Nineveh are located in modern-day Iraq, lined their irrigation canals with public art. Around almost 3,000 years ago, the ancient Assyrians constructed the canals that represented a high level of technical knowledge and helped make their empire flourish. Remember, that's almost 3,000 years ago. This fall, a team of Italian and Iraqi archaeologists found sculptured rock reliefs lining a canal running through an area now called Faida. The reliefs show images of their gods astride sacred animals. And on each end of the god line, there is an image of the king, Sargon II, who reigned from around 721 to 705 BCE. 
The impressive irrigation systems across the core region of the Assyrian Empire not only changed the economic foundation of the regions involved, but also profoundly modified the space and settlement patterns in the core of the Assyrian Empire, along with the mental and symbolic perceptions people had of this newly created cultural landscape and its collective memory, said Danielle Morandi. Bonacosi from Udine University in Italy, who was part of the archaeological team. The Assyrian Empire rose around 4,000 years ago, but the Neo-Assyrian Empire, the last stage of the empire before it was absorbed into the Babylonian Empire, lasted from around 911 to 612 BCE. It fell partly due to environmental changes, as well as, again, being absorbed by the Babylonians. The Fida Canal is located near the Kurdish city of Duko and is 4.4 miles long, averaging 3 feet wide. It was originally dug into limestone, but is now mostly covered by rocks that have eroded from the surrounding mountains. Secondary canals branch off from its water fields, branch off from it to water fields and other uses. It was fed by karst springs, and the water still flows in the canals to this day. The main threat to the canal are vandalism and the expansion of a nearby village. The reliefs are about 16 feet high and 6.5 feet wide. The researchers used a drone to investigate the site before they began excavations, which was first discovered by a British expedition in in 1973. Unfortunately, at the time, war nearby prevented excavations, and they were left buried for their protection. The new team used imaging techniques to record the artwork in case they became damaged. These were the first Assyrian reliefs found since 1845. From 925 to 725 BCE, the area had unusually high precipitation, which scientists have called the Assyrian Megapluvial. This allowed the Assyrians' land to flourish and allowed the empire to expand. It was followed, however, with a drought that lasted until 550 BCE and coincided with the empire's decline. Now, the researchers hope that they'll be able to turn the area into an archaeological park, someone like that, somewhat like that, of the ruins of Nineveh, uh, which were, before war and destruction overtook them, a place where people could go and actually look at these beautiful ruins. And so I really love the idea that they took the time to have artisans line the canals with art. It may have been for religious purposes in hope that the gods would protect their water sources, but I still think it's lovely to see art applied to such prosaic works of construction. So, you know, it's like the idea of taking the time to build artwork along the, uh, along railroad tracks to have sculptures or something along railroad tracks or to paint, um, the walls of subway tunnels, for instance, um, 
it would be something like that. And I think they should do that. Um, though, as we all know, um, generally when people try and do that with what is considered graffiti, it's often very much, uh, disdained and quickly taken away. Okay. Let's move on though. So we're going to stick with archaeology. The oldest and largest Maya monumental structure has just been discovered using LIDAR to map an area in southern Mexico. The newfound site is called Aguada Phoenix, and it is an artificial plateau measuring almost a mile long by 0.2 miles wide and between 33 and 50 feet high. It was most likely a communal gathering place for the Maya. The find pushes back the timeline for large structures built by the Maya into a time where they had not even yet organized into dynasties in order to have someone who could lead such monumental structure building. It forces us to change our understanding of the development of Maya civilization and the development of human society in general, said Takeshi Inomata, a professor of anthropology at the University of Arizona, who led a new study on the findings. Traditional scholarship suggests that the Maya developed slowly. The people in the Maya lowlands were thought to have been doing a combination of hunting, gathering, and some agriculture, which included growing maize or corn, from between 1200 to 1000 BCE. It wasn't until the middle pre-classic period between 1000 and 350 BCE that small villages began to emerge and the people began to create pottery. It wasn't until between 350 and 250 BCE that they were supposed to have begun building ceremonial centers and large pyramids. However, radiocarbon dating of 69 samples from Aguada Felix show that it was used between 1000 and 800 BCE and was largely abandoned by 750 BCE with only a small group with only small groups returning to use the structure after that. Now another previously discovered site at Sibal was built in 950 BCE. The structure wasn't hidden in the jungle. This structure wasn't hidden in the jungle, but was rather located on a cattle ranch in Tabasco uh, near the northwestern border with Guatemala. Nobody knew about this site because it's so big that if you walk on the site, it just looks like a natural landscape, Inamata told Live Science. The site was first discovered in 2017, which prompted the researchers to do the LIDAR survey of the area. Now, uh, if you're not aware, LIDAR surveys involve flying planes over the area while a device shoots millions of laser beams, which pass through vegetation and 3D map the underlying landscape. It revealed the artificial plateau and nine causeways radiating away from it. The main plateau is up to 151 million cubic feet in volume. The next largest is the La Danta complex at El Mirador in Guatemala, which is just 98 million cubic feet. 
In other words, the main plateau of Aguada Phoenix is the largest construction in the pre-Hispanic Maya area, the researchers wrote in the study. Excavations at the site revealed jade and stone artifacts, most likely used in rituals. Aguada Phoenix bears some similarities to San Lorenzo, an even bigger structure built by the Olmec, who reigned from 1400 to 1150 BCE in what is now the Mexican state of Veracruz. San Lorenzo, however, featured colossal stone heads and thrones, which indicate that the Olmec society was already highly hierarchical at this point. Now, there is debate as to whether the Maya emerged from the Olmec or rose up independently. Aguada Phoenix has far less signs of social inequality than San Lorenzo, for certain. Unlike those Olmec centers, Aguada Phoenix does not exhibit clear indicators of marked social inequality, such as sculptures representing high-status individuals, the researchers wrote in the study. The only stone sculptures found so far at Aguada Phoenix depicts an animal, a peccary or wild pig. It is also distinctly Mayan, with raised causeways and reservoir systems. This big plateau is basically for everybody, Inomata said. It's a place where people could gather. It's probable that the site represents a gathering place for different sets of people, where they could have had common meeting space created for the whole community. The site actually contains soils of different compositions, which suggests that farmers actually brought some of their own soil to the site to help build it and to bring a part of their home to the central location. And I was thinking it probably functioned sort of like a medieval, a medieval cathedral, where fairs would be held, where people could exchange goods and services, meet with one another, and generally come together in community, despite their otherwise needing to be distributed more widely to engage in farming and other pastoral activities. So I think that's very cool and very interesting. Um, I find it always disturbing when people kind of act like uh, the Maya and Aztecs were not, um, were not actually involved in doing sort of more um, more high-tech uh, versions of quote-unquote civilization. So there's a lot of disparagement about the Americas that, you know, oh, the people here were just savages who didn't have any kind of real understanding of civilization and they were easily defeated by Western uh, imperialistic forces. But the thing is, is that they actually did have very complex cultures. Many of them rival complex cultures in uh, Western Europe, in Africa, in Asia, in all of the other continents that developed those kinds of civilizations that did um, monumental um, architectural building and things like that. And so, um, you know, the real thing that helped destroy those civilizations was their own internal strife, their own internal rise and fall 
as uh, civilizations do. So the Olmec were already long gone by the time anyone got here from the West, even though they had a very complex and clearly uh, advanced civilization. But the people here were mostly wiped out by the diseases that they weren't accustomed to and by the fact that, um, obviously, the conquistadors had things like guns and cannon and uh, other weapons that they just weren't equipped to deal with um, because there isn't as much steel in uh, the Americas. Um, or as much iron to create steel in the Americas um, that had been actually mined. Um, there was much more use of gold and silver and jade um, and turquoise, things like that in um, cultures in the Americas. Um, but they were absolutely, completely able to form complex societies that absolutely competed in very real ways with people in uh, Western Europe. They were just at a different uh, developmental level because people got to the Americas later than they did Western Europe, for instance. Um, but some of the Maya and Aztec and Incan ruins are just amazing. Um, as you probably know, they're so amazing that they often uh, are featured on shows like Ancient Aliens, which enjoys talking about the idea that they're so advanced and so amazing that the people couldn't possibly have done it themselves, and it had to be the help of aliens. Um, it's really funny. Uh, I was watching someone on YouTube the other day, and they were saying that they need a t-shirt. Um, and it actually, I think, is available. Um, there's a t-shirt that says um, something to the effect of, uh, I learned from ancient aliens that aliens hate white people. Um, <laughs> because it seems to be that the majority of places where the aliens uh, interfered or helped out seem to be in places that were not involved with uh, white folks. So it's mostly in places like Central and Southern America, uh, in uh, Africa and in Asia, um, where you find that the aliens were hanging out and helping people. Um, and so, of course, you know, you do have the sort of token Stonehenge and um, some of the um, monumental stone architecture in France. Um, but other than that, it's mostly helping out people in uh, tropical countries and <laughs> things like that. So yeah, um, the aliens don't really like white people. That's what you get from ancient aliens. Um, because of course, what you actually get from al ancient aliens is the flip side, which is that uh, for the most part, the message is, well, brown people couldn't have built these things, so it had to have been aliens. But again, I'm here to once again reinforce the idea that the people who built them were the people who built them. There were no aliens involved. There were no uh, ancient Phoenicians coming to the Americas to help them. Um, I saw someone talking about that again the other day, the idea that the ancient Phoenicians sailed around the Horn of Africa and came to the Americas and bespoke and uh, 
and uh, bestowed their wisdom upon the people who were here. And while the Egyptians and the Phoenicians were incredible sailors, um, and there is definitely some indication that they uh, definitely sailed along the eastern coast of Africa, um, there is no evidence to suggest that they made it to the Americas. Um, and again, that's not to disparage them. They were amazing seafarers, but it was just a long way away from their actual bases. All right, let's uh, move on now and finish up with a couple of stories about animals. So let us start with talking about the chicken. <laughs> um, and so you may not realize, but until now, the origin of chickens was still up in the air, so to speak. However, a large international team of researchers have published a new paper in the journal Cell Research, which identifies the origin of the domestic chicken. Most in the field believed that chickens originated in China sometime around 7500 BCE and involved one or more species of red jungle fowl. Recently, researchers have claimed to find evidence of the bird's origin in northern China and the Indus Valley. The new evidence suggests that the chicken actually originated in southwestern China, northern Thailand, and Myanmar. Understanding the origin of chickens is important because they represent not only the most populous bird on the planet, but also the single largest source of animal protein in the human diet, and it played a major role in human migration. The new study involves collecting and sequencing 863 genomes, 787 whole genome sequencings, of which 162 were domestic chickens. 142 came from all of the various subspecies of red jungle fowl, with 12 from green jungle fowl, 2 from gray jungle fowl, and 4 from the Ceylon jungle fowl. Apparently there are a lot of different uh, birds that are uh, related loosely to chickens in uh, Southeast Asia. That is quite surprising to me that there were 142 uh, samples from the various subspecies of just red jungle fowl. Okay, um, so the resulting data suggests that the birds that eventually became modern domestic chickens were indeed from a red jungle fowl subspecies. Uh, this particular subspecies is called Gallus gallus spadaceus. The birds were then distributed to other parts of Asia and were bred with other red jungle fowl as well as species from the other various uh, jungle fowl uh, groups. They found that the modern chicken actually diverged from Gallus Gallus spadaceus between 9,500 and 3,300 years ago, much later than the time of first domestication of the fowl. And so for a long time, they were just basically red um, jungle fowl that were being kept. Um, and then at some point over the um, over time in 
keeping them, they eventually actually branched off from those uh, original red jungle fowl. And so that is very cool because again, they are a very important species to humans. They are the single largest uh, source of protein. And so um, one of the big things, especially in say plants is to find the ancient ancestors of plants in case, for instance, disease strikes and starts to wipe them out. If you can find other species that are wild but similar, you can help bring in some of that genetic material and can potentially save um, the plants. And I would assume that it is very similar here, where if you know about which uh forms of jungle fowl are the closest to chickens in case there is some sort of major issue with chickens because I would assume that modern chickens are very similarly uh are very similar in genetic makeup across the spectrum that you can bring in that extra um that other gene material in case of emergency basically okay so let us now move on uh, speak of another kind of tracing ancestry. Scientists have found that modern sled dogs, such as Siberian Huskies and Alaskan Malamutes, go all the way back to the last ice age, with an extraordinarily long period of genetic continuity. Although sled dogs are one of the most specialized groups of dogs, their origin and evolution has received much less attention than many other dog groups opens the new paper published in Science. Mikkel Holder Sinding, a paleogeneticist at the University of Copenhagen and first author of the new study, along with scientists from many other institutions, decided to learn more about working Arctic breeds. Now, domestic dogs in general originated sometime between 15,000 and 40,000 years ago having diverged from an extinct wolf species. They appeared during the Pleistocene and were the first animals domesticated by humans, predating other domesticated species, including farm animals, by thousands of years. Sled dogs emerged during the end of the last ice age, the Pleistocene-Holocene transition. The new research shows that modern sled dogs have roots that can be traced back to ancient Siberia and represent a distinct lineage which, with an origin some 9,500 years ago. Now, this isn't particularly surprising given the amount of archaeological evidence that has been discovered over the years. Artifacts from the late Upper Paleolithic in Siberia include carved bones, antlers, and ivory used for securing dog harness straps to sleds in a similar fashion to how Inuit people do it today. On Zokov Island in eastern Siberia, archaeologists excavated sled technologies and the remains of ancient sled dogs from the period. This teaming of sled dogs and sleds would have allowed long-distance travel and transportation in a harsh wilderness. The present study sequenced the genomes from 10 modern Greenland sled dogs, the remains of a 9,500-year-old dog found on Zokov Island, and a 33,000-year-old wolf mandible dubbed Yama. 
These genomes were then compared to the DNA of 114 modern dogs from a host of geographically and genetically diverse breeds, allowing the researchers to create a kind of family tree for dogs. They found that Yenna was most certainly a wolf, while the Zokov dog was related to modern huskies, malamutes, and especially the Greenland sled dogs. These ancient Siberian dogs are the common ancestors of all modern sled breeds, and it makes sense that they are most closely related to the Greenland sled dogs, as those dogs have been isolated the most over the millennia. Arctic people and Arctic dogs go back over 9,500 years together, and that the tradition of sledding, still around today, uses the same group of dogs, Sinding told Gizmodo. Now, it is a surprise, however, how little the breeds have changed over time. They found some flow from Siberian Pleistocene wolves, but no significant mixing with modern or ancient Arctic American wolves. The researchers sus suspect that while there was interbreeding between dogs and wolves, humans did not favor hybrids of the two, and would have, which would have made sense as the breed had been, you know, carefully cultivated for many generations. <laughs> the result that catches my eyes is the continuity of modern sled dogs with the sample of a dog from a context implying sledding culture 9,500 years ago. Daniel Bradley, a geneticist and microbiologist from Trinity College Dublin who wasn't involved in the research, told Gizmodo, We already suspected that dogs were the earliest domesticate, this finding implies one particular partnership of humans and dogs, their use for traction in Arctic regions as an unbroken thread stretching back into the early Holocene. And so that is very cool. All right, so that's about all the time we have for tonight. Um, the only other thing that I was reading recently is that Apparently, foxes in Britain are starting to uh, show signs of domestication syndrome. Uh, so basically, they're trying to do kind of what uh, dogs did, it seems, that they're hanging out with humans more and they're becoming more domesticated because uh, they are adapting to living in human uh, spaces. And so I think that's really cool. Wolves are adorable in all ways, shapes, and forms, so um happy to see that that is happening, and hopefully they will continue to be able to uh, survive and thrive in urban uh, areas. All right, that is now all the time we have. Uh, do come back next week for more Evidence-Based Radio. Good night. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.